Hello, 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 and welcome to Kicking and Streaming, the show where streaming originals and traditional cinema enter the ring for the ultimate showdown. I'm Bo. And I'm Chris. Are streaming originals the TV movies of the 21st century? Is cinema really different from movies? Is Netflix the future? These questions and more on... Kicking and Streaming. Kick, kicking and... You, you, need, you, need to say, you need to say it with me. No, I thought you... Okay, okay, hold on. Kicking and... Hold on. No, no. Okay. At the same time. Okay. Okay. One, two. Kicking and Streaming. Streaming. Okay. No. Here. No, okay. I'll, I'll count you in. Well, uh, welcome back, everybody. This is episode three of Kicking and Streaming. Last episode, we uh, we talked a little bit about regrets and midlife crises and whatnot. We uh, we watched the films, the Browning version and the Land of Steady Habits. As a little uh, experiment, I was a little bit inspired by those movies. So uh, as soon as we finished recording the episode, I went ahead and uh, I reached out to all my friends on Facebook, and I just kind of I wanted to see what they think of me. I, I feel like Browning version especially was about some very difficult self reflection, and I felt like. I'm a grown-up. I can do this. And, uh, you know, I got, I got some really good feedback. And, you know, once Jenny, once my wife talked me down from the roof, we actually had a really good conversation about, you know, this perspective and things like that. So it was, it was nice. It was a good moment. Uh, for today's episode, we're actually uh, talking about some, some pretty fun stuff. <laughs> the theme for this episode is what you don't see. Uh, it's uh, it's going to have a little air of mystique to it. I'm very excited. Bo, uh, I assigned you the movie Bird Box, and you assigned me Picnic at Hanging Rock. Let's start with Bird Box. Bo, what did what 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 did, what did you think of Bird Box? Bird Box. Okay, so Bird Box is our Netflix film this week. So it was Chris's assignment to me. Uh, this is a 2018 film. Uh, kind of, I believe. When it came out, was sort of seen as the Netflix answer to A Quiet Place. Yeah, that was the vibe for sure. Yeah, and I didn't catch it uh, on its release. This was my I watched it for the first time for this episode, but I think it also inspired. Wasn't there a, a spat of uh, Bird Box challenges? Am I remembering this right? Oh my goodness! I feel yeah, like I was hoping we'd there, talk about this. People like driving around blindfolded and trying to navigate with a blindfold on as part of the bird box challenge. So it definitely made waves yeah. uh, at the time. I remember hearing a lot about it, but like I said, I hadn't hadn't tuned in until just now. So the film, you know, if you haven't seen it, is a sort of um, apocalyptic film, kind of interesting, incidentally interesting watching it during our uh, 2020 COVID-19 <laughs> pandemic because... It's sort of a pandemic of its own. We're following Sandra Bullock, who is soon to be a single mom. She's pregnant and she's hanging out with her sister and they're going about their day. And suddenly we see that news is erupting of this strange virus or thing that is causing people to commit suicide. And it's happening far away, but very rapidly it starts to hit the U.S. And within the first few minutes of the film, it has struck our characters and Sandra Bullock's sister commits suicide pretty early on into the film in a quite remarkable... She steps in front of a vehicle 
And when she gets struck, there is an immediate cloud of blood. Do you remember this? <laughs> yeah, this confirms my theory that people are actually just water balloons. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> so very quickly, this this thing is happening, and it, and it seems somehow discriminatory. Like I, I, we don't really know why, but some people are being affected, and some people aren't. And these suicides are happening and society is just uh, immediately collapsing in an extremely rapid way. Sandra Bullock makes it to this house where people have started to figure out pretty quickly, I guess, that the key is to not see these invisible creatures, this essence, whatever it is that's causing this. It's a visual attack. If you look at it then you have a high chance of being affected by it. So the idea is to you know draw the blinds, close the doors. If you have to expose yourself to the outside, you need to wear a blindfold. And that's a big part of, you know, a lot of the film is characters moving around in blindfolds. That's the challenge as they're trying to navigate this terrifying new world where these invisible, this invisible essence or essences are out and about trying to kill people. And so it quickly becomes a sort of horror thriller survival film, very much like A Quiet Place, which is uh, something it's been compared to. <laughs> you know, A Quiet Place, you have, you, you know, it's dealing with sound and you can't make any noise. Make and that's the whole the whole point. And Bird Box, you can't look at, at things. We just need to complete the trilogy with a, with a hear no evil. Like, uh, yeah, exactly. you know, get some monsters that like... Like you just make like you know, like sirens, they sing, and then you walk into the ocean or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess there are you know mermaid horror films or a few of those. Yeah, yeah. With actual sirens, right? So that's the film, and it uh, kind of I, I feel like it's a it runs into a lot of similar formulas. We have like a ragtag group in the tradition of a lot of horror films that are caught in a house basically and it's sort of like a haunting you know because you have these creatures that you can't see so it's kind of a ghost story in that way and and there's this element of distrust you know it, there's the general distrust of society is collapsing and strangers are being thrown together and anyone at any time could cause a blunder that puts the others at risk. So there's that kind of psychological tension. But then later on in the film, it becomes apparent that some people, and it seems to be that people who are mentally unstable or um, mm -hmm. maybe schizophrenic or they've got different things going on, are affected differently by these creatures. They, When they see them, instead of killing themselves in some fantastically violent way, as most of the other characters do... They instead are sort of enraptured by what they're seeing and go around trying to make everyone else look and see. And they just sort of vaguely say, you need to see it. It's, it's so beautiful. You must look. And we run into a few of mm -hmm. these throughout. And so there's also that element as well, that some of the people you might run into, in addition to just exposing you to danger through stupidity or something like that, they might also be one of these people that wants you to look at, yeah, at whatever yeah. this thing is. Conceptually, that was actually one of the things that I personally admired about the film, because I'm 
uh, I don't know if this is a big secret in our social circles, but I am a huge fan of cosmic horror and a lot of the concepts that are espoused by H.P. Lovecraft. I love the idea of of horror or, you know, these stories that make you feel like the universe is incomprehensible to anyone and any attempt to comprehend it, or in this case, even look at it, would drive a person insane. And then, of course, the insane have an easier time grasping it at various costs. But I, I, I have thoughts on the execution of it. <laughs> but uh, that's one of the reasons I was so happy that this episode took the turn it did, because I think both films had this this feeling of the yeah. terror of our insignificance in the face of things we can't understand. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I mean, it, we will get to look at two very different approaches to the idea of, yeah, some sort of, I guess, force or something something out there. Because, and this is a question that, that I want to get into with both films, is uh, maybe this is a spoiler for Bird Box, but we, we never really find out what these creatures are, right? We don't know what's causing this to happen. And that was kind of, and we'll, we'll, we can talk about that aspect of things when we get to Picnic at Hanging Rock, but also with A Quiet Place, you've seen A Quiet Place, yes? Actually, only clips. Oh. I've only seen clips of A Quiet Place. Oh, right. Place. Okay. Yeah. Well, it, it takes a similar approach of, you don't go into a lot of like exposition of why these creatures are here and why now and what are they doing and what do they want? And it's just sort of, mm-hmm. here we go. We've set up a scenario now to thrill the audience. And I think I think these are these have got to be very tempting for screenwriters because I think it's I think it's fun to come up with all these sort of survival devices. You know, I think this is one of the things that people like about the post-apocalyptic genre in general is just, okay, society is collapsing. We've got to operate differently now, you know, whether it's because of zombies or nuclear war and we're just dealing with other people or some sort of mystical thing you know from children of men to all that all these sort of stories there's always this element of okay so how do people navigate this world now like how do they hide what devices do they use what kind of you know in bird box we see people are using um blindfolds they you know she has a a bike bell that she rings to let them know where she is they they use gps to drive blindfolded through the city <laughs> um <laughs> they have um she you know she uses like some sort of i don't know what it is some kind of like construction wire stuff to fishing that she can tie yeah, yeah that she can tie so that she can follow that line back when she's wandering around in places that she doesn't know and she can't see and then they also use birds and the thing is that and this is touched on lightly uh, surprisingly lightly i think given that it's the title of the film but <laughs> yes there's the fact that birds can somehow sense these creatures. Maybe they can see them, but they don't commit suicide or go mad. They just get excited and try and like fly away whenever these creatures are around, cause a lot of noise. And so they're used as sort of watchdogs or a warning that the invisible creatures are near. And uh, one aspect that we haven't really talked about yet is that this this film kind of cuts back and forth between two timelines. In one timeline, we're seeing... The initial incident of the creatures sweeping over America and how this ragtag group of survivors is navigating that world. And then 
we're also, as we come to find out as the film goes along, we're seeing in the future Sandra Bullock with two children, and they're trying to get somewhere. And to get there, they have to take this river to get to some sort of safe place. And uh-huh. they have to, of course, do that blindfolded. And so there's we're cutting back yeah. and forth between the in present, she's navigating this boat with herself and two blindfolded children. And then we're having all these flashbacks to the beginning. And there so they take birds with them. As soon as they figure out that this bird thing can happen, we see the birds a few times and they're these I think they're grass parakeets, some kind of like Australian mm. colorful parrots and I don't tell me if you could ever figure out why are they keeping these birds in a box? <laughs> like it's literally like a black hat box with like some holes crudely poked in it so that the birds can breathe. There's like no perches. There's no like food that I can see. They've literally just shoved these birds into this box where they cannot see. And they're carrying yeah. them. They're they're strapped to this young boy. This boy that's like I don't know, like five or six or something. Has got he's like wearing uh-huh. this box on his belt, full of birds. And <laughs> boy, if this film, you know, if you have any question about the the level of horror or thrills within this, if you like parrots, this is a thriller because. <laughs> I just kept wondering how these birds could possibly survive everything that they were going through. You know, this boy is like, he's tripping, he's falling, he's he's getting washed off his boat in the rapids, you know, and all this time he's got this box of three parakeets strapped to his belt. And I just kept, you know, I mean, the film does, yeah. succeeds in creating that tension. I mean, intellectually, I know that, of course, there are no real birds in that box, but I can't help wincing as I think of those birds getting bashed about in there and uh, wondering if they're going to die. And I just kept thinking, you know, bird cages has been used to transport birds for centuries. <laughs> well, not and only they had that, a bird they find cage, the birds in a bird cage. And I don't know whether, I mean, I know there's a film called The Bird Cage, so I don't know if that was the issue. <laughs> False advertising. <laughs> They had to call it Bird I came here to see Robin Williams and Nathan Lane. Yeah, exactly. I don't know, but I was very confused at (laughs) why the... They could just shorten it and call it The Birds, right? The There you go. Yeah, that's a great title for a (laughs) horror film. It's as indicative of of the content as the current title. (laughs) Yeah. So, I don't know. That, That was something that I thought, ironically, we don't really see a lot of the birds or the titular bird box... But also, it does provide some of the film's most tense moments for me, was mm-hmm. just watching that box get bashed about and wondering if those, what those poor parakeets are doing. Uh, yeah, it breaks your heart. I wanted to talk a little bit about this, okay, this, this river ride. So, you know, at the point, there's the point in the film where they, they have to drive to a grocery store. And they, yeah, they cover the car with, uh, with tape on all the windows and everything. And they use the GPS and the little the little motion sensor that tells you when there's something near your bumper. And they use that to just kind of slowly navigate their way there. And at the time, I'm thinking, like, you know, there's a, a, bre- a small part of me that's like, really? Really? But I also, I can suspend my disbelief to, to an yeah. extent. The extent, yeah. I discovered my extent. I discovered my limits watching this movie. <laughs> because when they're on, they're, they're on the river, okay, they're, they are going down a 
this isn't a shallow, lazy river. This is a, this is like, at one point it's like turns into rapids and we'll get to that in a second. But like, this is not an easy river to like, if you sat in an inner tube and just kind of closed your eyes and leaned back and just let it carry you, I'm pretty sure, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. But I feel like you wouldn't make it, what was it, like 50 hours? It says at one point, it shows little little yeah. updates. It's like 50 hours on the river, 58 hours on the river. And it's like, what? what? Like, you could just get into this boat and not look anywhere and just let this river carry a large boat full of people and birds and supplies and all this stuff down the river and not have any incidents until you reach the rapids. Am I misremembering? Or do they, in fact, like pull to the side sometimes to... Maybe they're just washed. Yeah, they occasionally ashore. don't they, they gracefully make their way to yeah. a shore sometimes. Yeah, yeah, that's for right. supply runs. And I, I, the whole time I'm thinking like how like I don't know. Maybe she's just like Daredevil. She's really good at just figuring stuff out through sound or something. <laughs> yeah, it's but, been uh, a while. She's been existing in this world for a while. She's you know she's learning. <laughs> she's these adapted. And something else that bothers me about the river ride and about a lot of this film, I think that the cinematography of this movie might be the single biggest missed opportunity in the entire film. Specifically, now, okay, I'm going to show my ignorance here. I, I haven't seen The Quiet Place, but from what I've seen of the clips and from what I've heard from people who saw it, the film does a decently okay job at stressing the fact that you're not supposed to make noise. Like, they, mm. you know, they, there's, apparently there's a lot of silence in the film, stuff like that. Yeah. In Bird Box, I'm thinking... Okay, so there are these creatures out and about. If you look at them, you go crazy and kill yourself. In my head, if you wanted to make an effective film about that subject, if you wanted to make the audience feel like they are in the shoes of these protagonists who can't look at things, I would film it very claustrophobically. I would keep the camera very tight. I would not show much of their environment because they're not supposed to look so why, as the audience, do I get to look and see nothing? There, there's lots of these moments where, like, I was blown away. I wrote this down. I was blown away at how many massive wide shots there were. So many shots, like aerial views of them walking through an empty town. Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, all I see is nothingness. Like, the only reason that I should be afraid is because they're afraid that they might see something. But... Again, like you said, are these things invisible? Like, in my mind, I feel like it would be a lot scarier and a lot more intense if you actually, you know, maybe you hear, thump, like, thundering footsteps outside or you, 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 and they do show shadows sometimes of them passing over windows. So they, they appear to have some physical presence, which is why the big, massive, empty spaces bother me so much. Did they show shadows? I felt like they were mostly manifest through, <laughs> which like, I thought was an interesting leaves. point. <laughs> Leaves, yeah. It's like this had to take place in the fall. Like everywhere they go, they're just a mass of swirling leaves. They're leaf, they're leaf monsters. Yeah. And 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 there's that moment when they're in the car and you see some dark shadows moving over the tape. You know, like that kind of darkens right. for a little bit. But I yeah. think that's that that really might be the only time. And I don't know, like. In my mind, you don't have to just show the inside of blindfolds, but if you want to transport the audience into the shoes of these people who can't look anywhere, have the world be as mysterious and unsettling to us as it is to these people who can't look at it, you know? Right. Like, it's a, tight it's a shots, classic like, horror, you know, rule of thumb with thrillers and horrors to, you know, to play with the unseen. And I'm so glad you brought this up because mm -hmm. I feel like that's exact. I had the same thought that this film takes very little advantage of what seems to me like the most obvious premise. Like even that scene, um, you know, I, I agree that the driving through the car and all that, um, it's 
pretty ridiculous, but it's a nice scene in the genre of kind of campy thriller horror films to have these characters driving around, you know, and it's an effective thing. You know, like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, are they gonna are they gonna hit something? Are they running over things? Like what what's out there? It's just so like that's immediately something that can stress you out. The idea of driving and not being able to see anything. And you know, a lot of us have faced that kind of through weather or different things and we know what that's like. And I was I was shocked by not only the idea like you're pointing out of these, you know, these sweeping like helicopter shots or drone shots or whatever they are, and all of these big wide shots, but how little we actually get through the point of view of the people who are blindfolded. Like every once in a while we'll get mm-hmm. these sort of like misty shots of like like you might see if you put a cloth over your face and you can still kind of sense light. You can see like threads, but you can't make out any details. And we get a few of those shots, but we don't really get any like, oh what what's out there? Yeah, yeah, they, they they don't play off the temptation to look. Like Right. Like there's never any moment where you as the audience want them to just peek under their blindfold because as far as we can tell, they look at nothingness. They just look at empty space and then they just go crazy. Right. So Which there's, is there's, what's it's the such temptation? an odd choice to have oh, don't look, don't look. You know, like the quiet place we were saying like don't make a noise. And it was very effective for a lot of people in cinema. I read a lot of people talking about how they you know, they felt in the cinema like nobody wanted to make a noise and you were so conscious of like if you coughed or if you were going to have like another mouthful of popcorn because everybody's just hushed and quiet going like, oh, wow. And yeah, you feel like you could really play off of that of like, oh, no, don't look. Like I know you want to look like because, you know, you're driving, you need to step or because you hear something or because someone's in danger. But instead, mm-hmm. they've made these creatures invisible. So we can't see them. Yeah. Like if they look... There's nothing for us Even to look at. There's no to. tension for the audience, uh, which was a remarkable choice, I thought. And and even just because let me tell you this, I found that this is this, this is albeit coming from the IMDb trivia page, which I don't really trust. But this is what it says. It says Sandra Bullock <laughs> ran into the camera a couple times during production as she was blindfolded, which I think, <laughs> which I think, wow, number one, like. How is that happening that nobody, you know, they're just letting her kind of run around and not minding that she's getting really close to the camera. And she really is, you know, fully blindfolded. They're not giving her any sight, you know, and um, (laughs) method dedication. there. And then Sandra Bullock was blindfolded, she says, for about 50 percent of the shooting schedule, which I can believe because a lot of the movie takes place on the boat, you know, and all of that stuff. She's going to be blindfolded the whole time. And I'm just thinking again, like all that time that she's blindfolded and we really we just never have those shots of where they're just i I was just waiting for those moments of like oh shoot like what's happened to the kids like we hear the kids like falling Uh where are they oh no like the frustration of looking around through this blindfold where where have they gone what's happening oh my gosh is she falling there's tumbling like what's happened instead they just continually cut back and show us everything that's happening and i felt Uh like well there's just a, a, I don't know, a wasted opportunity. Yeah, that's like the, the 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 phrase I would use to describe this entire movie is a wasted opportunity because it's like you said. There's there's so many moments where like, and I I know for a fact that there are going to be some people who listen to this, and this is maybe this is presumptuous of me. There's going to be lots of people who listen <laughs> yeah. to this, and there will be there will be some who will say, 
you missed the point of the movie. You're not supposed to see the monsters. That's the whole point. And no, I get that. You know, we we both get that. The point is not yeah. to see them. That's what the theme of the episode is, what you don't see. The point is, we don't need to see the monsters. We just need to know that they're there. We, yes. we need to know that they are a physical presence because... I mean, without that, we're watching The Happening. M. Night Shyamalan's The Happening. My gosh, right. I wish that was a streaming original so we could talk about that movie. Or a Criterion film. You think Criterion will ever take The Happening, Bo? Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh. this, this film gave me a lot of The Happening vibes where it's, yeah, that's you know, true. we're supposed to be scared by that, a gentle but, breeze. Yeah. Yeah. It's rustling in the bushes. Ooh, no. You know, it's you've you've got to give me something other than just people's eyes going funny and then them stabbing themselves or something. There's just you can use sound design, you can use like we said silhouettes, you can use all kinds of stuff other than rustling leaves and some gentle whispers, you know. <laughs> it's Yeah, it which just doesn't do I, it for me. I want to I want to get to that in a moment. We'll come back to that the whispering. But Let's mm. let's take a moment maybe and talk about the performances uh, mm, and yeah. the the characters in this film because okay so we have Sandra Bullock right and these two kids who if we want to talk about suspension of disbelief this was <laughs> maybe the hardest point for me to suspend my disbelief these kids how old are they they're like four or five they're called boy yeah, four or five boy and girl she very sincerely. <laughs> Calls them boy and girl all the time. I don't remember what the thinking is behind this. Like not being attached think, to them was, is the idea. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, avoiding like, attachment to our own children. Yeah, something <laughs> bizarre. Anyway, she spends a lot of time with boy and girl. These two cute little kids. Kids in danger is, of course, uh, you know, rife for terror and thrills and so on. And. And mm -hmm. but the other part of the film is spent, you know, with this ragtag group, which I kind of again in the tradition of sort of like campy horror thriller stuff, where we're throwing a little bit of the you know our suspension of disbelief away, and we're diving into a stylized universe, and we're just gonna we're just watching these people try to survive. You know, this is something. This is what makes shows like Lost and The Walking Dead and all these kind of things fun. Is you just you throw all these people together different temperaments, different mm -hmm. backgrounds, and they just all have to sort of, you know, do or die. And so th this group, we have the one that sticks out the, the most to me is we have a big, you know, very loud, very kind of flamboyant and dramatic, as he often is, John Malkovich playing <laughs> this, this sort of, you know, he's, I don't know, he's kind of, he's a big, he's an he's arrogant a jerk. douchebag. Yeah, but he's also he's kind of in charge of a lot of things, mostly because he's like sort of the most aggressive character, and also he's the one who happens to have a shotgun, uh -huh. and he's introduced right away as all this is initially happening, and everybody's running around in a panic as these creatures are first attacking or whatever this thing is, and Sandra Bullock is pregnant, so as she trips and is running and trying to survive after her sister turns into a cloud of blood. <laughs> the survivors in this house are looking through and John Malkovich's wife sees this pregnant woman, you know, and feels bad and rushes out to help the, the pregnant lady. And it's a little ambiguous to me. Did you ever, did you ever catch like, is it that anyone uh, barring the, like the schizophrenics that love looking at the monsters. I couldn't quite figure out in the beginning I felt like 
some people succumb to the the monsters and some people don't. But then mm-hmm. later on, it felt more like, no, everyone will for sure if they see it. So never look. Whereas at the beginning, I felt like it was kind of, there's a high risk that you're going to succumb. So be sure you don't look because you don't know whether you're going to be one of the ones or whether this is your time. Because, uh-huh. I mean, I don't see in the beginning, I don't see how everybody hasn't seen these things. You know, I mean, we're literally yeah. like one person sitting next to another person and they're affected, but their neighbor right next to them isn't. And they're both looking at the same thing. So I was a little confused mm-hmm. as it went on how that works. And I don't know whether that's I didn't catch it or whether the movie doesn't explain or whether that's just yeah. kind of a plot hole or what. But Yeah, that's something that that bothered me immensely because, yeah, like you said, there's that in that intro, we have like hundreds of people running and screaming in every direction. And once again, these creatures appear to be invisible and only appear to people they choose to appear to, which really muddles the stakes. We don't know what's at risk here because we don't know if these things are going to choose or not, which is, again, why I thought the whole time I was watching this, especially if they were going for cosmic horror, if they were going for something kind of Lovecraftian with their themes, in my opinion, if I were the director slash writer slash whoever – I would have personally, instead of making it a bunch of shadowy whisper monsters flying around just choosing to occasionally manifest themselves, I would have had it be some behemoth, some massive, incomprehensibly large thing that plants itself in the middle of the city and anyone who looks at it goes crazy and kills themselves. So that way you have like, you could have entire waves of people who all see it at once and then just this mass panic of people just trying to throw themselves off bridges or something. And then that way, it's like you could constantly get these glimpses out the window of just like you see a sliver of it and be like, oh, no, 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 don't look, don't look. So it's like it's always there and the audience knows it's always there. And no matter where you go, like you always can see it from anywhere because it's so huge. And again, that would be so cool because the camera would never even have to show it. They could design this horrifying monster and never show us the whole thing because the characters aren't supposed to see it. Yeah, that sets up a much more terrifying premise of like, what is this and why do we want to look at it? Which is a question – that I think could have become the driving force that like gets under your skin of this movie. Like, mm-hmm. why do they want to look at this thing? Whether Whereas in this film, it was more kind of, um, why, why do they want to look at this thing? <laughs> like, <I didn't... laughs> Exactly. Well, and, and not only that, um, I was going to say, speaking about Malkovich's character's wife, who yeah. runs out to help Sandra Bullock, at that moment... I was thinking, like, what even is the effect of looking at these things? Because, like you said, um, her sister, before her sister goes full water balloon, she sees the creatures through the windshield of the car. And, you know, like everybody, her eyes go all spotty. The actress did a good job. Uh, Sarah Paulson, I think, is her name. She did a good job conveying, in my mind, she, she out of everybody, she did the best job conveying... Yeah cosmic terror with her reaction to what she saw because she's got tears in her eyes she starts crying and she says like what is that and then she tries to crash the car and to me that part i get goosebumps now like to me that's probably one of the most effectively chilling moments because you genuinely think whoa what did she see that made her do this and it's and it's a great job of establishing that tension which quickly goes out the window especially with characters like malkovich's wife who she goes out there to help her and then just I, I want to talk about this later, but the stupidity of characters. I always want to talk about this. She helps her up, and then she just looks. Like, she knows the situation. She helps her up, and then she just stares yeah. off into the crowd. 
And her reaction is wildly different, completely different from Sarah Paulson's reaction. She sees something and she just goes, Mom, don't go. And she just starts walking away. And then she just walks up to a burning car and then gets inside. So it's like her sister's character, she's, it, it, it drives her mad. It, like, it, it like breaks her to see it. But with this lady, she just it makes her, I guess, hallucinate her mom and just be like, I guess I'll get into a car. You know, it's just so inconsistent. And I think that they're trying to play with the idea maybe that, you know, everybody's seeing something different and it's kind of our own personal horror, which I, I just feel like they never really leaned into that enough because I think you're right. The mm -hmm. In the beginning when her sister sees it, you know, there's something like the fact that she starts crying and she's, you know, she's seen something so horrible that like she's just she's got to do this now. She's got to kill herself. Like regardless of all mm -hmm. of the will to live and the fact that her pregnant sister's in the car with her, none of that matters anymore because of what she's seen. Mm -hmm. And I think we're supposed to feel kind of a chill when Malkovich's wife just, I think it's the idea there is her nonchalance, right? Like some of these characters are bashing their heads against the wall or stabbing themselves. Mm -hmm. And this character just calmly gets into a burning car and just sits there to burn alive. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it, it is yeah. very inconsistent. So that's how we get to know the Malkovich character. And he's kind of the main aggressor in this house. Um, we have the sort of hero ex-army character, Tom, he's called. We have the old lady, Cheryl, played by Jackie Weaver, which, by the way, that's another fun little connection. Uh, Jackie Weaver, I don't know if you caught this, she's in Picnic at Hanging Rock. Oh my gosh. She's the maid. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah, she's the the maid who obviously we'll talk about during the next movie. But yeah, in this in this film, she plays the old lady that looks like she's sort of like a wealthy old lady, and she's one of the the longest lasting members of the group of survivors in that house. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. Jackie Weaver. So we have her. She's sort of she doesn't really get much to do. She's not one of the main survivors. The others we have... You've got that punk guy who's trying to channel his best Bill Paxton from Aliens, just constantly saying how effed they are, <laughs> like every oh, three yeah. minutes. Yeah, and he's the one that runs off with Rosa Salazar. With the girl. Yeah, the cop, the trainee cop. Yeah, yeah. Which I was a little disappointed that she was underused. I don't know if you're familiar with her. She has a great show with... Well, I say great. Uh, a very intriguing show, anyway, with a great performance from her, I thought, in that Amazon mm -hmm. original series called... Undone, I think it was, with, shoot, what's his name? Uh, Better Call Saul. Uh, Bob Odenkirk? Yeah, Bob Odenkirk. And it's, it's, a, it's a rotoscoped animated series. So quick plug. If you want to see, if you want to see Rosa Salazar, an, an interesting, slightly frustrating little series, check out Undone. And you can see that yeah. she's actually quite, quite the actress. But anyway, she just has a bit part in this. She's, um, she's the cop. She, there's this tension between her and the the criminal. I mean, there's one point as the world's collapsing, he's popping some pills and she's like, don't you know that I'm a cop? You know, all angry at him. And uh, they end up running away with the car. They steal the vehicle of the surviving group. They also have the sort of random, inexplicable sex scene in the middle of the... Yeah. <laughs> Out of nowhere. Yeah. And then... Okay, so there's a couple other characters. Uh, there's a character, Charlie. He's this nerdy character who works at a grocery store. He's into, like, 
uh, apocalyptic fiction. And so he's kind of spouting all these theories about what's out there, all these myths, you know, because he's working on a novel. That was probably actually the the biggest genuine laugh that I got from the, I mean, where I think I was supposed to think it was funny, his character, where he's going on and they're asking him how he knows all this stuff. And he's like, I'm working, I'm working on my novel, guys. And they're like, oh, come on. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was pretty good. I did like that. Yeah. And so he's kind of the, you know, they all kind of have their, their types. And, and this is the thing that, you know, it's, it's, it's cheesy and campy, but I could really embrace kind of these characters and just sort of the fun setting of like, all right, here are all these different people and they're trying to survive this thing and they have to, you know, deal with each other. And in real life, these people wouldn't want to deal with each other, but they have to. Anyway, I've been blabbing. What what did you think about the the performances here, the characters here? Did anything stick out? What do you think of the the way they act and who they are and all that. Yeah, I, I thought the acting was pretty decent for the most part. I don't think there was any place where I thought, oh, come on, like, this is awful. I would actually say the acting from a lot of the side characters is part of what kept me interested, especially, yeah. uh, gosh, what's his name? The the guy, the Englishman who they allow into the house partway through. Yeah, Tom, uh, Tom Hollander. Felix. So you're talking about Gary. Oh, no, not Felix. Uh, yeah, Gary, Gary. I, I really liked him. So basically, just to describe his character very briefly, one of one of the f- newer survi- survivors allows him into the house on a whim because she remembered how scared she was being stuck outside. And everybody's mad at her because they don't know this guy. They don't know what his deal is. And then he says that he and his friends were forced to look. But he quickly adds, like, I didn't look, but they did. And then somebody else helped us. And But then about... Partway through his appearance in the movie, while uh, Sandra Bullock and another survivor are giving birth upstairs, he's downstairs just reaching into his briefcase and pulling out a bunch of drawings of, you know, these ghoulish, horrific things, which, again, to me, they're creepy drawings. They all look like they're from scary stories to tell in the dark. I think that they would have been more scary to me had there been any indication of a physical presence. Instead, it's just kind of like, oh, that's how that guy imagines them or something. But uh, he, yeah, he gets out all these drawings and he just starts to slowly kind of ease into this kind of creepy, dazed mania. And uh, he just starts taking stuff off the walls and uh, off the windows and, and kind of encouraging everyone to look outside out of nowhere. But yeah, I, I thought they all did a great job. I thought Malkovich is kind of like Gary Oldman and Nicolas Cage, where I enjoy watching them do anything, even if they're in a movie that's not good. <laughs> and yeah. Nicolas Cage, you know, obviously... In a movie that's not very good, typically Cage's performance is not very good either, but he's just magnetic to watch. He's just crazy. Yeah, and I, I agree that Malkovich, he's one of those very idiosyncratic actors. You know, there's nobody – like n- nobody sounds or looks like John Malkovich. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, it, it's funny. Whenever you see videos of people doing celebrity impressions, Malkovich is always one of them. Oh, yeah. He's got that way of enunciating his words. Like, I yeah. I can't do it. But uh, <laughs> he, he has a brand, you know. He's got – Yeah. There's a – you can you can have – you can give a Malkovichian performance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he was a lot of fun. And uh, I appreciated the fact that his character th- – there's a moment partway through the movie where he says, we're going to make the end of the world great again. Oh, and he's yeah. doing it almost kind of jokingly while he's drunk. And, you know, <laughs> and again, everybody rolls their eyes like, oh, come on. But uh, I, I appreciated the fact that they could have gone with a much easier portrayal of your cartoon, 
you know, MAGA hat wearing Trump supporting, you know, like yeah. in the in the media, there's a very clear depiction of people who like Trump and everything. And it's yeah, we all know exactly how Hollywood feels about Trump supporters. And- exactly. So I, I appreciated the fact that they exercised some level of restraint with his douchebaggery and that they actually gave him a few moments to humanize him a bit and make him relatable, you know, when he explains yeah. his reasoning for things. It, it, I appreciated the fact that they could have gone the easy, easy route and instead they went the mildly easy route by making yeah. him a, a prick, but it, yeah, at I, least a relatable one. I, I agree that, you know, there's a lot in this movie that feels like missed opportunities, as we've been saying, and there's nothing that I feel is incredibly uh, groundbreaking or all that memorable. But I think that a lot of the performances that we get of the people kind of diving into these cliched roles enlivens the film and makes it makes it watchable and saves it from being, you know, like a total like B movie that you'd be seeing in like MST3K. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. I want to say uh, just how much I admire uh, Sandra Bullock. I think she is a great actress, at very least in the terms of sort of like blockbuster carrying movie star kind of persona of getting in there. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a, a love interest develops between her and the the Tom character. And, you know, mm-hmm. she's a person who she reminds me of Tom Cruise and that she's she's looking great. She's really fit. She's 26 years older than that character. Is she really? I mean, than the other actor, I mean. Yeah. She's 26 years <laughs> older than him. She's carrying all the, you know, she's utterly sincere and as convincing as you can be, you know, shouting, boy, girl, don't go over there. <laughs> yeah. And she's really just a, a champ throughout this whole film. And and I, I think that she is a very dependable actress for carrying a film, you know, whether it whether it is a, mm-hmm. a pretty mediocre thriller or some kind of a comedy or whatever it is. And she's not often choosing those sort of Oscar Beatty roles where you know she's putting on a lot of uh, accents and diving into stuff or doing things like Meryl Streep or someone would do but she is mm-hmm. i think a great actress to just to helm something like this a yeah. sort of yeah netflix answer to quiet place just sort of out there thriller thing that you're supposed to just kind of turn off and enjoy and is supposed to have a lot of broad popular appeal and I think I think she does a, a good job with that. So th- this is a good time maybe to bring up, you know, one of these moments talking about what a champ Sandra Bullock is. The clip that I had, which will kind of segue from the performances to a little bit more of the ambiguity of what's going on. So the clip I've picked from this film is toward the end. And they've reached the end of their improbable boat journey, Sandra Bullock and boy and girl, and they're in the woods now trying to get through. And this is when we're introduced to what I think at this point is a completely new aspect of what these creatures or whatever this force is, what it's capable of. Yeah, toward the end of the film. <laughs> yeah, right at the end, yeah. So, well, let, let's just let's just play it. So I think at this point, they've somehow been separated as they're trying to get through the woods, Sandra Bullock and the two kids, and she's, she's tripped and, and rolled down a hill, and now she's, she's getting up. Look at me, Valerie. Boy, girl. Valerie. Don't move. Stay right where you are. Don't move. Valerie, open. 
Can I really take off my blindfold? What? It's safe? No, that's not me! Right. So, and there in that clip, ironically, you know, there's always the oddity of sharing movie clips over an audio format. But this time, I think the podcast audience is seeing the scene how it should have looked <laughs> rather than what you actually get if you watch the movie. Yeah, you, you feel how the characters allegedly felt. Yeah. So, yeah, we're, we're introduced here to a, a couple things I, I thought were kind of strange choices and you tell me what you think about this but so yeah number one this is the first time that i'm really getting the sense that there's a temptation to look that there's mm -hmm. you know i've never felt from any of the characters before except for the the crazy ones that are trying to make people see but i never get the idea that any of the you know the normals so to speak want to look at this thing they don't want to look if they're ever even tempted to look at all. It's simply because they're trying to solve a situation in which they need visual input to solve. Like there's no idea that, oh, like they're so incredibly curious to see these creatures or these creatures are trying to seduce them or trick them. None of that is introduced until right at this moment at the, the end of the film. And I have a theory. <laughs> I have a theory. <laughs> okay. What's your theory? <laughs> I have a theory that the reason why the creatures are using voices now is because they're flamboyant. They want to put on a show for the audience. And since they're in a pine forest, there are no leaves. There are no leaves for them to make their presence known, so they have to speak. Otherwise, we don't know that they're there. It's <laughs> a very real in, possibility. The, in the city where the bulk of the story takes place... It's eternally autumn, and the monster's presence is mostly made known through leaves blowing around, as we mentioned. But yeah, here, <laughs> here they're in a big evergreen forest, and maybe that's maybe that's why. But it does, you know, it feels to me very much like the end of a fantasy, like sort of the final boss. Like, oh, you're trying to achieve the safe place now. Like, you're nearly to safety, and so now we're going <laughs> to ratchet it up that. and give you our worst challenge yet. <laughs> You know, it, it's almost, it, it gives it like a sense that I don't know if it's, it's almost like they were trying to go for some sort of spiritual allegory or some kind of test. Like, you know, it very much has the feel of you've reached the end of your quest. Now, if you want safety, you have to pass through this final temptation. Final gauntlet. Yeah. Yeah. And again, sort of the inconsistencies of these creatures and 
and what they do. And also, <laughs> on a side note, another example again of uh, Sandra Bullock carrying the film, you know, rolling around blindfolded, apparently running into the camera, and all these other things while calling out boy, girl, and, uh, you know, giving a nice, convincing blockbuster performance there. But yeah, I don't know uh -huh. what you, how you reacted to this scene oh. and this revelation that the monsters can now speak. And that's the other thing is they're not even, they're not like tempting, like, oh, take it off. Like you need to see, you need to see. They're literally trying to confuse them. They're just using other characters' voices. They're mimicking and trying to bamboozle everybody. Uh, see, I, I have thoughts on this scene. Apart from the stellar performance from Sandra Bullock, this scene frustrates me endlessly. I've already said as a big proponent of cosmic horror and Lovecraft, I was really let down by this moment because for me at least, there was still this impression, this faint hope leading up to the movie of real cosmic terror, part of which a big key theme of that genre a lot of times is mankind, you know, losing their minds, going crazy at the sight of something that doesn't even necessarily notice them. Something that is not even necessarily in itself malicious. It's just so incomprehensibly vast and insanity-inducing that we just can't handle it. And I love the idea of a creature that is lethal to us, but, you know, we're like ants. It couldn't care less about what's going on with us. And there was always that kind of impression, especially with how not present they were. You know, I was I always thought maybe they're just maybe they're just floating around doing their thing, and if you see them, you go crazy. I like I really like that concept. And so at this moment, having them suddenly care so much about people seeing them really took some of the mystique out for me. Because knowing that they are intentionally trying to kill people by having them look at them, it really crystallizes a lot of things in the movie that were more compelling when they were nebulous. And again, you know, them using mimicry, using other people's voices – it's a lot out of nowhere, and for me, it severely limited the potential of what these creatures could be. And on top of that, speaking again of wide shots, I don't know. Maybe this is a maybe this is a situation where they just couldn't win no matter what they did. But you know, they were trying to go for hysteria with the camera panning quickly around Sandra Bullock as she's looking around, you know, trying to find them. But in that process of the camera whipping around and stuff, we are seeing an entirely empty forest and. Once again, the camera is just so quick to show everything around the kids, everything around Sandra Bullock. They literally look like three people alone in a forest. So once again, the fear, the terror, as far as we're concerned, is all imagined. And it's just, again, I really wish that we had that there was a physical presence to the creature that, again, for the people who say we don't understand, we don't have to see it. We just have to know that it's there. And that would have really ratcheted up the tension in that scene for me. And instead, it was it was the opposite. I, that was supposed to be the most tense moment of the movie. But for me, it kind of pulled me out of it. Yeah, it's a strange choice to leave the terror, the actual terror, to the characters themselves. You know, and the, the characters, like we've mentioned, for the most part, these actors are pulling it off. You know, we believe them and who they are. Mm -hmm and what they're going through. But what the movie never gives us is a chance to experience what they're going through ourselves. We're just watching it happen to these people. And in that way, yeah. it does end up being a mildly entertaining film as we see these characters go through what they're going through and try to survive. But it misses the chance to be a terrifying or unsettling film because it never gives us a glimpse into that world. Aside from, you know, 
just very sort of half-hearted attempts to show us what it looks like from a blindfolded point of view for a second or driving inside the car, things like that. Yeah, you never feel like you're there. You always feel like a detached observer, which yeah. that's yeah. really not a way to make me scared is to make me feel like I'm just watching other people do stuff. Well, you know, I appreciate the movie's effort to tell a compelling story. Kind of like with Tao, there's, there is evidence of sincerity. Yeah in their attempt at telling their story. I've seen worse movies. I've seen a lot better movies and I've seen better movies that have done what this movie tries to do mm-hmm. better than it does. But yeah, I don't know. Uh, but what do you think? Uh, who, who would benefit from watching Bird Box? Who is this movie made for? Yeah. So I think, it, you know, I think it's very much sort of a popcorn thriller, right? Kind of the, the blockbuster mm-hmm. horror-esque movie, you know, clearly if you like The Quiet Place, you might want to check this out and see just to kind of compare. I don't think, again, that it's a terrible film. The characters are interesting enough to keep you going through. I think mostly what it is, like we've been saying, is a film that just sort of wastes its premise. So, you know, there's some inexplicable things. There's, you know, the moments of disbelief. But all of that can kind of be fun. You know, I mean, that's very much in the tradition of a lot of the campy horror films, the kind of like, wait, why are they going in that room? Like, how stupid, you know, that's a typical thing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it just sort of ends up being lackluster and never really living up to the horror that they could have created, either by going for the wait until dark approach of just the terrible, I can't navigate my world because I can't see, or the sort of cosmic horror Mm -hmm. that you've been speaking of. So anyway, I think that if you're okay with sort of (laughs) seeing a premise not quite reach its potential, but maybe maybe you like a quiet place, maybe you you enjoy kind of turn off, sit back, popcorn horror thrillers, then there might be something in this for you. Yep. I would agree. If you don't have many scruples about storytelling and if you're just happy to be here, <laughs> if you don't if you don't have many expectations for a movie with a premise like this, I think you will enjoy yourself. It seems like a lot of people did with Bird Box. It was a pretty popular movie when it came out. It's not undeserving of an audience, but if you get hung up on little little nagging details and especially squandered potential, this might be a frustrating yeah. watch for you. Um we we should take the bird box challenge and try doing a blindfolded podcast sometime. What do you think? <laughs> Can we? My word. I, I don't know how I could pull it off. Uh. How would I even know where my microphone is? <laughs> uh, but Bo, you assigned me a film. Yes. Arguably a better film in my opinion. Picnic at Hanging Rock. This is another Criterion film. Currently it's streaming on the Criterion channel or available as a Criterion Blu-ray. Um, this is a 1975 film directed by Peter Weir. So yeah, what did what did you think? You know, I I it made me realize how wildly inconsistent my taste is because I've gotten really mad at movies like this in the past. But I absolutely loved Picnic at Hanging Rock. I can't explain it. It's as, it's, it's as mysterious as the tides. They come in, they go out, you can't explain it. I'll describe very quickly, because this is a story that is very easy to tell quickly, I will say. So it opens on this, this, this all-girls school in Australia in 1900. There's this little posse of friends, Miranda, Irma, Marion, Sarah. There's this outsider 
Edith, who's kind of this chubby, clumsy, whiny girl who's clearly not really part of that in-group. They're heading out for a picnic with their with their group to this geological oddity, hanging rock that's a dormant volcano. One of the friends, Sarah, has to stay behind because she's behind on her studies, I believe. The rest of the group, they go with a, with a large outing. And while they're all just kind of hanging out and relaxing, uh, Miranda, Irma, and Marion want to go off and take a closer look at Hanging Rock. I think they say they want to take measurements. Their, their teacher, Depoye, she, she lets them go off. And then Edith asks if she can tag along. And they say, sure, if you don't whine. They go up onto the mountain. And then what follows is this really weird, surreal, kind of atmospheric, slow sequence where these girls kind of walk around on the rocks, sometimes laying down, uh, just kind of, kind of, they're waxing philosophical. And actually, I could, I could share my first clip just to kind of paint a picture of what this scene is like. To be honest, this is one of the parts that still kind of perplexes me. Whatever can those people be doing down there? Like a lot of ants. Surprising number of human beings are without purpose. Though it is probable they are performing some function unknown to themselves. Everything begins and ends at exactly the right time. Yeah, so basically these girls are, they're standing up on Hanging Rock and they're looking down at the other girls who are all still at, at the bottom. The other blonde girl, she's looking down and she says, you know, it's, look at them all just like ants. Like, it's so weird how like so many people serve no real purpose, but maybe they do and they just, they serve a function unknown to themselves. And then Miranda says, everything begins and ends at exactly the right time and place. And with the music, you can hear it. It's this very kind of like, like this very kind of eerie, windy sound. And it's, in my mind, this was my thought going into it, was that this moment that they disappear is such an impactful moment that it's like it's sending ripples through time and space in each direction where as it gets closer to the moment of their disappearance, they themselves are kind of entering this trance. Anyways, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. As they sit up there philosophizing and looking down on their fellow classmates, they eventually kind of lie down for a rest and then they get up and they just walk into this recess in the rock. They just kind of walk behind some rocks. And then Edith sees them leaving, begs them not to, and then screams this unholy scream and then runs down the mountain. And then suddenly we snap cut. We cut back to uh, the headmistress, to Miss Appleyard, and we see that, you know, the people are coming back, and they're coming back really late, and they tell her that three girls have gone missing along with one of the teachers. And then basically, that's really the setup, and the rest of the movie is just descending action from that point, of everyone reacting to this mysterious disappearance, trying to find out what happened, where they went. We see several different people, including two boys, this English kid named Michael and his assistant, Albert, who's kind of his friend. They saw the girls walking off before they disappeared. A lot of people kind of intersect with the story of this disappearance, and we kind of get a very intimate look at all of them kind of reacting and trying to make sense of what happened. And it 
that really is kind of the sum of the entire story. And it, it's hard to it's hard to get into why this is such a big deal without getting into spoilers. So if you haven't seen Picnic at Hanging Rock and you don't want to be spoiled, this is going to affect the rest of the conversation. So I guess just stop here, go watch it and come back. Yeah, there's there's no way to talk about this film without going into, you know, the intricacies of the plot throughout it. Yeah. So the uh, the the film ends with no resolution. That's actually uh, that that's one of the things that makes this movie famous is a lot of people. Uh, I was looking up stuff about initial critical receptions to it, and uh, Peter Weir was giving an interview. And let me find it. He said one distributor threw his coffee cup at the screen at the end because he'd wasted two hours of his life. A mystery without a solution. Yeah. We never find out where the girls went. They do eventually find one girl, which I think just increases the frustration even more. The fact that there was one survivor who can't remember anything. So they find, they find one girl, but they, the other two and the, the teacher who disappeared, they're lost forever. They never, they never find them. They never find out what took them. And it's just this, to me, ironically, this film, I think nailed the concept of cosmic horror better than Bird Box did because once again, I was I was reading a few different things. Uh, it was Roger Ebert. He said that he said it was a film of haunting mystery and buried sexual hysteria, and uh, he said it employs two of the hallmarks of modern Australian films: beautiful cinematography, which it did, had gorgeous cinematography, and stories about the chasm between settlers from Europe and the mysteries of their ancient new home. I think this film captures a lot of the core concepts of the genre of. You have a lot of these moments where uh, people are exploring, trying to find these girls, and they're all just kind of, you know, dressed in their modern clothes and and looking around, trying to find where they went. And they're in the Australian outback trying to find them. And I think the contrast, the visual contrast between society, these these regular people searching through this wild, dangerous area, not able to find anything, uh, like no satisfying answers. That, that I think that might be my favorite thing about cosmic horror is the feeling of insignificance and the feeling that no matter how much we master our little corner of the planet, no matter how much we become, no matter how much control we establish over the things we can control, there's always going to be a lot, a lot that is completely outside our control. And it can step in and take us at any moment. And there's, in the end, there's very little we can actually do about a lot of these forces in the world, in the universe that we want to understand, but we're not entitled to that understanding. Yeah. No, I think that's a good point that you bring up because I think a lot of this movie does deal with the idea of trying to control. There's this through line of repression and rigidity and the sort of absurdity of, you know, if you think about the Aboriginal people's in the outback, you know, they're wandering around in, in loincloths and they're doing walkabouts and they sort of understand the chaos of where they are. But here we have these, you know, these white Australians essentially trying to plant English culture right in the middle of this, this wild land. And one thing I've thought in the times that I've, mm -hmm. that I've spent in the United Kingdom is there's this kind of odd relationship to me, I, th I found it odd between the English and nature, where nature is this soft, nice, cuddly, bucolic thing that you go and you stroll out and 
the sort of the biggest complaint that you get in England is the rain. And I always thought it was interesting coming from America where you have people certainly enjoy nature and being out in nature, but you have to be aware of these different creatures that, you know, the bears or mountain lions or things that could that could kill you. And if you times that by 20, you've got Australia, right? Where it's like, it seems, always seems to me from everything that I read that Australia is just actively trying to purge humans from the country. <laughs> yeah. And you get that sense about hanging rock, and as well as the sort of mystical aspects. They have several talks about poisonous insects, poisonous spiders, keep away from them, you know, and we do see lizards creeping around and things. And just this idea that this is a land that you that you may not be able to tame. And I think that's mentioned again, you know, in the, the two Criterion films that we've watched in the first two episodes of this podcast had no music on their soundtrack. But this one has a very distinctive soundtrack that's very overpowering throughout the entire film. We have, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes this sort of piano music suggesting the old world. We have the sort of... Those Romanian pipes. Yeah, we have the sort of thrumming. And then we have yeah, the other, the pan flute. This sort of like, I think Peter Weir called it pre-Christian music, you know, that we're dealing with, with gods of another time, sort of mm. mystical, ethereal something coming up from from the ground almost in this rock, which is either, I don't know, it, at the same time, it's sort of innocuous and you just look at it, it's just kind of a pile of rock, you know, it's, it's not very foreboding in the, you know, as in... Uh, because it is eerie, but I guess if you were drawing a cartoon of like an evil mountain, you know, this isn't what you would draw. You know, it's it doesn't have like sharp uh, spires and smoke and the sort of cartoonish danger signs about it. Yet there is something created in the atmosphere and the way that it's shot uh, combined with all this this music and just the whole tone of the film that gives it very much sort of an ancient eerie presence. Yeah. I like that. Cause it's, yeah, I'm, I'm going to keep <laughs> compulsively impulsively uh, plugging cosmic horror throughout this entire episode. But uh, going back to bird box a little bit, I was disappointed in the idea that these creatures were literally actually evil and trying to hurt people. And because like you said here, hanging rock, this big structure it doesn't, it doesn't look evil. It just looks like raw nature. It just looks like a thing that happened. And especially being a dormant volcano, it's like a fairly recent thing that happened, historically speaking. Just like, you know, they, the, one of the teachers even says, you know, it's like the, the last eruption would have been only, only a million years ago. This thing's probably 50 million years old or something that, that formed this into what it is. And it's, the mountain itself doesn't feel evil. It just feels wild and untamable and incomprehensible. And it's the, the soundtrack does a really good job selling it. People's reactions do a really good job selling it. There's a moment where uh, Michael and Albert decide to go out looking for the girls because they're restless. You know, they, they're, they're so worried about the idea that they could be alive out there starving or dying of thirst or something or getting, you know, any of the number of dangers in the outback. They go out searching for him and, uh, you know, comes up fruitless and Albert wants to head back. Michael says, go back without me. Uh, he wants to stay. He wants to stay the night on this rock and try and find, try and search more. And then he, he continues up the mountain without Albert 
and he's kind of skewering little pieces of paper on the branches so it's easier to, to find him or find his way back. And he he heads up into the mountain and over time, we kind of see this this moment of him crawling on his belly across the rocks with like a banged up forehead and he, he looks like he's been through the ringer and it's just – it's so interesting because this, this mountain it, – it's a big mountain but to me it doesn't seem like it's quite big enough to get lost in to such an extent that you are bruised and battered and crawling around trying to find yeah. something. And because of that, to me that really sold the mystic element of it because you've got this guy who – you know he's been up there for a few hours by himself it seems at this moment. And it's already just wearing him down. He's so ill-equipped to handle Hanging Rock that he, he looks like he's near death by the end of it. And then the next day, Albert comes back looking for him, and he finds him kind of catatonic. He's like shivering. He, he looks like he's seen some things. And so Albert runs out, gets help, and as they're carrying Michael away, Michael grabs his hand, and he gives him a piece of clothing, a piece of fabric that would have been on one of the girls who disappeared, which I don't know. For me, I, I love stuff like that because there's so much implied and there's so much to ask that couldn't possibly have a satisfying answer. Albert runs up into the mountain again. He runs up to Hanging Rock and he searches around some more following the paper. And Well, I think he already followed the paper at that point when he found him. But uh, he, he kind of goes back to where he found him. He looks a little bit more and he finds, I think... Irma. Yeah, he, find, he finds Irma unconscious, and he finds out that she's alive. There's, like, lizards crawling on her, and she looks pretty ratty, pretty pretty banged up as well. He calls for help. They get her taken back. But uh, the fact that he finds one survivor, and the fact that Michael somehow found her, and the act of finding her messed him up so bad that he's catatonic when they find him, I can see this film being very frustrating to a lot of people, because... The impulse is to want to know what Michael saw to make him the way he is. And I, I also understand it, it may sound a bit hypocritical of me because I'm I'm mad at Bird Box for not implying more to the stuff you're not supposed to see. But to me, there's a big difference between Bird Box and this film in that Bird Box, you're not supposed to look at something, but it should be there, but it's not. And that makes a really confusing and frustrating dynamic with this Everyone just wants to know what's happening, and they're not being given that luxury. I, I love the fact that this movie asks questions that are so captivating that there couldn't possibly – there couldn't be a satisfying answer, not one that fits into human reasoning. Do you think that that's, that's the case? Because I wonder sometimes if what makes us able to wade through the frustration, you know, if we are, for those who are able to, is I wonder that – you know, isn't it so that, I mean, they do set up so many things, and we can talk about that in a minute, so many threads of where this could be going and what the answer might be. But I think mm -hmm. there's a bedrock of possible practical answers, which, for example, is something in Bird Box we don't have at all. Like, there's no, there's no way that Bird Box can be explained in a way that makes sense to the world as we know it. Whereas Picnic at Hanging Rock, I think there are very... You know, there's implications of, oh, maybe they were taken or kidnapped or raped, or maybe they fell in a hole, or maybe they were bitten by these lizards. You know, there's so many sort of mundane answers mm -hmm. that could be the explanation behind what's happening. But but the sense of mystery you're bringing up and frustration, 
And I think frustration is a key theme throughout this entire film in many ways. But I, I was listening to Peter Weir talking about the film, and he brought up that same story that that you read about the the guy who like threw his coffee cup at the screen and said, "I've wasted you know time watching this this movie, and you're not giving me an answer," sort of thing. And he said that he knew that it was a risky commercial venture, despite the Peter Weir, that is the director, despite the low budget, because he knew that it would be frustrating. Um, he he quoted Hitchcock saying, "Is you know that mystery is one of the most difficult genres to tackle because you've got to you build up all the suspense, right, and all these questions, and then you've got to find an answer that doesn't feel like just a total letdown." And yet in this film, he's just not going to even give you an answer, but but that can also be frustrating. And he said that one of the ways he wanted to combat this was to make it clear, and I think this is key into what you were saying, he, he said he wanted to make it clear from the beginning that this movie probably isn't going to give you an answer, so that it's not like a film that just right at the end you go like, wait, what? You know, and... I don't know mm -hmm. how much you were aware of this film. I had already kind of heard that it was this ambiguous movie. So maybe I was a little prepped, but did you, going into this, I mean, did you feel like, did you think by the end of it you were going to have an answer or did you feel from early on that this might leave you hanging, as it were? You know, yeah, it's funny you say that. Going into this, I actually... I actually initially thought that this was going to be a murder mystery because it, it, it basically says, you know, the, these girls went on a picnic. Some of them never came back. And this is the mystery about what happened. And in my mind, I, I especially thought this as the girls are heading up into the mountains, you see two boys, Albert and Michael, watching them head up. And then Albert even makes a comment about, well, they both make comments about how the girls are hot, you know, and like they're, look at that one, you know, I bet you could get with her. She's pretty cute kind of thing. Yeah. And you know, there's this there's this very brief kind of fleeting moment of like, oh gosh, is that is this where it's going to go? Like these these boys are going to do something. And there's something kind of off about the boys too that we sense. I feel like right from the beginning, at least I did. Yeah. Where they'd feel like there's something a little abnormal. Yeah. There's there's that moment where Albert says like she's got great legs right up to her bum, and then Michael says like I wish you wouldn't use such vulgar language. And it's like this. Yeah. There's yeah. There's just something kind of kind of off kilter about it. And uh, and so for a while I was thinking like, okay, so I wonder if, you know, in my head, where my head was at, I kind of accidentally will sometimes try to predict where a movie's going as it's going, you know, just kind of trying to piece together the, the threads and stuff. In my head, I thought, okay, there's going to be a murder. We're going to think it was these boys, but then there will be something else. You know, there'll be, they'll, they'll be the obvious suspect and then something else will come up. But then the movie took a, a turn. And I think what got me... What what got me to open my mind a bit was the way the girls were behaving on the rock, because I don't know if you felt this. It felt like at least Miranda, possibly the other two as well. Um, Marion seemed a bit likely to do this as well, but like it seemed like especially Miranda knew that they were going to vanish. Uh, she she's. There's a moment where, as they're saying goodbye to Depoyer, their teacher, she says, you know, don't worry, we won't be gone long. and uh, But she does it with this kind of ethereal, mystifying kind of weirdness to it. And then when they go up there, you know, when she says everything begins and ends at exactly the right time, 
it almost sounds like, you know, she's talking about them. And there's even there's even that moment early on where she's talking to Sarah. I, I think she's talking to Sarah, and she says, "Yeah, she says, um, you you'll need to learn to love someone else as much as you love me. I'm not going to be around much longer. Something kind of vague, you know, not quite on the nose, but and there's this kind of faint implication that I don't know. To me, maybe she's talking about just leaving the school or something like that, but. As as it snowballs and as it continues, you realize, to me at least, it it sounds like she knows that something's going to go down. And to me, that that fact, that that impression that I got from Miranda, told me that what was about to happen was not going to be a normal disappearance. It was not going to be yeah. like you know, your average somebody came and killed them or they got bit by a snake or fell down a hole. I mean, it could. Like, if anything, it could be that maybe Miranda pushed the other two girls into a hole and then threw herself in or something. But like what in my mind, something unexplainable happened and Miranda knew it was going to happen, which makes it even more unexplainable to me. I got a very distinct impression that she that she had made peace with the idea that she was going to disappear with these other two girls. And so from that moment, moving onward, I was mostly just curious to see all the efforts people were making. I... My, my mind had already resigned to the fact that they were gone and that we were never going to find anything out. And it was I, it was easier to accept the nebulous ending at that point because to me it wasn't necessarily about how they got taken because I didn't think I, – I thought the answer would either be incomprehensible to a human mind or disappointing. You know, disappointing as in, oh, they just fell off a rock. Here's their bodies. They fell in a bush or something like that. You know, like I, I, I almost prefer not knowing. Yeah, I think it's – it's interesting because like you say, there's sort of a, an effect that comes from they set up so many possibilities. They hint subtly at so many different things that you're just sort of overwhelmed by the sheer number of explicable and inexplicable things that might have happened. You know, there's this whole thing with with twins. There's this whole thing with like watches stopping. And there's all this improbable, like magical stuff without ever really dipping so far that we feel like this is a fantasy. Like it feels grounded in reality, but it sort of is able to shift and make us wonder, you know, about what reality is because there's so much um, just sort of inexplicable happening. And and I think yeah. there's this interesting balance that goes on because it's like he says, you know, he's using the music, he's using all these things to give you this idea so that it's, so that the frustrating experience isn't a total um, gut punch right at the end. Like, uh, oh, you thought you were going to figure out exactly what happened. Well, now you're not. Because I agree. I also felt like there's probably this movie is going to end with a lot of ambiguity. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure to what degree. Maybe there'll be a strong hint at one one idea over another. But I didn't think that I was going to get a oh you know here's the flashback. Here's the detective explaining exactly what went by beat for beat. Yeah, yeah. But the other aspect is this playing around with the, you know it opens up with here's this disappearance that you know happened in such and such a year. You know, we see that text pop up right at the beginning of the film. Mm -hmm. And then let, let's go ahead and, and play. I had a clip with a little interview with with the director, Peter Weir, talking about the film, because this film is based on a book. And uh, when Peter Weir, you know, came upon this book, was under consideration to direct the film, uh, the, the author had exclusive rights. So he had to he had to go to her and sort of ask whether she would approve 
him to direct the film. And so here he is talking a little bit about approaching the the author to ask her to talk with her about that. Uh, that I, I said, uh, Lady Lindsay, I've been told not to ask you this, but is the story true? And she said, um, young man, I hope that you do not ask me the question again. And I said, that's fine. Okay. And I said, well, I'll move to another difficult question and you may tell me that you're not going to answer this. But I said, I mean, do you think it's wide open what happened to these girls? I mean, in your mind, do you think they fell down a hole? Do you think, for example, they were abducted by aliens? And she said, any of the above. <laughs> As regards the truth of it, I decided to keep her intriguing, tantalizing introduction and did something similar in the film. Journalists, after the film came out, searched records to find any evidence and found nothing concrete. I think it was some kind of an incident that was similar but quite different in other aspects that inspired her. She certainly had an incident and it was to do with a girls' school and she went to a similar school. What it was, I don't know. Um, but it was a secret buried very deeply. Yeah, so here we see, number one, and, and this one leaves it sort of, you know, the author of the book clearly is guarding this mystery, right? She's she's hostile to people asking the question even. You know, she's trying to protect the the ambiguity. As it turns out, I mean, if you look it up like on Wikipedia or something, they say it's just a straight up, you know, it, it's just not true. Like mm. there's no evidence of anything based in fact. But again, I'm interested and you know the Cohen brothers famously played with this uh with their movie Fargo and the subsequent uh TV spin-off series where by telling the audience, just by lying to the audience, just saying this is a true story, you approach it in a very different way. And I didn't know that it was completely false or partially false. Mm-hmm. I mean, I knew obviously that you know that it wasn't going to turn out that some mystical force abducted them and we know that for sure you know but yeah yeah but i thought that they were i thought they were playing around with a true story that had an ambiguous end an unsolved mystery and they were using that as a tapestry to weave all of these possible scenarios of what could have happened and create sort of an ethereal like we keep saying just thing and i think that really does something for the film because what it does for me is I'm now in my head going, okay, so they're trying to make it mystical. They're trying to add this sense of fantasy or maybe horror or inexplicable something to it. But in my mind, I'm going like, okay, so these are the facts. These are the people who are involved. And I'm trying to think, well, what really happened? Yes. You know? And so sort of puts me into the competition with the movie of going like, okay, like I get it. Maybe they're going to say it was some hocus pocus, but let's see. It's got to be that gardener, right? Like he did it, mm-hmm. you know, sort of something like that. And it's interesting then to look and go like, oh, well, actually it's all just like the whole thing is at the very most based on an elaborately fictionalized incident. You know, there's no real bedrock of truth to work against. But but having the feeling that there was going into the film, I think fundamentally changes the way that you watch it. At least it did for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually speaking about uh, going back to Bird Box a bit and how frustrated I was that they did a terrible job putting us in the shoes of these characters. It was the exact opposite for me with Picnic at Hanging Rock. Uh, th- this movie 
like you said, having that little intro at the start saying this event happened in 1900 and so and so, for me, the movie was so grounded in reality and so plain in its presentation that unconsciously I became a character in the movie who couldn't accept a fantastical, kind of like what you're saying. Okay, well, what really happened? So as it progresses and as things kind of get whittled away and more developments happen, finding Irma and all this other stuff, you start to, for me at least, I started to kind of be like, okay, well, something not normal happened to them. That seems pretty evident. But I, like, there was this little little voice in the back of my head that was like, they were probably abducted by aliens. And I was like, no, 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 that's ridiculous. That's stupid. And, you know, it's just funny because in movies like these, you always have that character who's like, come on, there's surely there's a logical explanation for this. Let's not, you know, let's not go out of our heads here. Like, and then, of course, in most of those movies, it's like, come on, you idiot. Look around you. There are spaceships in the sky shooting lasers down. Like, you have to at some point acknowledge that something weird is happening. But this film makes you so desperately want a rational explanation that for me at least, by the end of the film, again, I was glad for no closure because I don't think that as a character in the movie, I would have been able to handle it if I found out what it really was and if it was something that defied reality as I accept it, you know? And it's, the movie was so transporting in that way that I felt like a skeptic who didn't want it to be something crazy. And yet, by the end of the movie, it's like, you, you don't know what it was, but it feels like it was something crazy and you can't accept it. Let, let me ask you this, because having the advantage <laughs> of knowing you for all these years, <laughs> I am aware of your frustration with like sort of the J.J. Abrams mystery box and the idea that, you know, like the Lost series, which famously set up so many tantalizing threads that never developed anything satisfactory. And I've certainly watched, especially with TV shows on the rare time that I dive into like a, a TV show that has an element of the fantastic or the mysterious, I immediately start to feel like, uh, they don't mm -hmm. know where they're going. Like there's no way they're, they're throwing up so many wild threads that there's no possible way that they're going to be able to tie these together in a way that is satisfying or in a way that feels cohesive. And yet I feel like something is is working to make Picnic at Hanging Rock at the same time a you know a frustrating experience, yes, but also much more satisfactory than something else. And so I guess I'm kind of wondering like what makes what sort of atmosphere allows for ambiguity and when is ambiguity just lazy storytelling? I don't you know what is the difference there? That is, that is such a, a fantastic question, and I think it's pr pretty much the question behind this whole episode, I think. Why does Picnic get away with it and Bird Box doesn't? Or, you know, like you said, J.J. Abrams. The guy knows how to point a camera and get people excited, but yeah, you know me well. I, 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 I hate most of his mystery boxes. And I think a, a way that I tried to rationalize it, because here I am thinking I'm a huge hypocrite. <laughs> Because I love the ambiguity of this movie. I love the lack of resolution in this movie. Why am I so bothered by Lost, by ugh, early Star Wars sequels? So why, why did I make an exception here? I think for me as a viewer, I see it like this. There's that phrase where there's smoke, there's fire, right? And J.J. Abrams films are often 
to push the metaphor, filled with smoke. And they are filled with people saying, wow, look at the fire. And occasionally that you will eventually begrudgingly be shown the fire and you realize that there was way more smoke than there was fire. And it's, you know, it, it doesn't feel proportionate to the buildup. Meanwhile, Picnic at Hanging Rock, there's no smoke. There's just the smell of something burning. And to be less vague about it, J.J. Abrams has a nasty habit of asking very, very specific questions and then feeding you bits of answers that are just as ambiguous as the questions are. And as more questions are asked and answered, it begins to connect dots into a picture that it doesn't feel Lovecraftian to me. It doesn't feel like it's incomprehensible. It just feels like a sloppy mess. Like like you said, they can't possibly make these things make sense in a narratively satisfying way. Whereas like in my head, I was thinking, you know, what if J.J. Abrams had directed a remake of Picnic at Hanging Rock? I think perhaps when Michael goes up to the rock in a J.J. Abrams film, I think he would have gotten up there and I think he would have maybe found some nail scrapes on the wall, maybe some kind of hieroglyphics that show like a spiral and a big tall person and lots of little people around it. You know, there would have been like, there would have been a lot of, ooh, look how mysterious and crazy this is. Look, what could this be? What could this be? And instead, the movie asks one very simple question. What happened to these girls? Where did the girls go? And then it, it just, from that moment, it just pursues lots of, maybe it was this, maybe it was this. Oh, it couldn't have been this because now there's this. And it's it's just gently scraping away layers of dirt and you're, you know, you're hoping there's a, you know, dinosaur bones underneath, but you never get to that point. But it's, yeah, it's, it's just, it's this, this feeling that you're not being taken for a ride. And I think a lot of that comes from not making such a big deal out of how mysterious it is, not constantly throwing it in the audience's face as if you're bragging about how cool this mystery is. Boy, just wait till you get the answer, you guys. Like that, that's part of Abram's problem is that he's constantly saying like, you know, having people nod, like uh, in The Force Awakens, Maz Kanata saying to Solo, who's the girl? Camera cuts away. You know, it's there's lots of moments where he's like, I bet you're wondering what the answer to this could be. Stay tuned for next time, maybe. Whereas with this one, the movie isn't, it really doesn't jam it in your face. It's just very gently kind of being like, hey, where do you, where do you, where do you think those girls went? What do you, what do you think happened? And it's, I think subtlety and humility are two key ingredients to telling a, a mystery story with no with no solution. Yeah, and I, I think that's a great point. And, you, and what you were making me think of just now is I think there's a couple things that help with the approach. And the first is I think that we very quickly get the setup. And, you know, some of this can come from outside context. You know, we know that this is like a Criterion film rather than you know, a blockbuster. We know all these different things, right? Mm -hmm. But also very quickly, I think with the music, with the mood, with, you know, it opens with these girls and they're sort of prancing around and they're reading poetry and all this kind of stuff. And we get the idea very quickly that, ah, this is going to be an art film mm -hmm. in a way. And I think once you open that door, suddenly you're aware that, okay, maybe we're not going to get a conventional story here. Like there's certain things that we're not going to hit, which, you know, a lot of the J.J. Abrams type stuff, you know, is very much going to be in that blockbuster vein where we have a certain expectation. Oh, okay. This is going to follow some Hollywood tropes and structure, which 
is by no means a bad thing, but it gives us a certain expectation. Whereas this, you know, is working on several ways to give us a different expectation. And I think that helps. And the other thing that I think is something that came to mind, like I said, just off of what you were saying. And that's because I've been I've been kind of wondering as I watched this, I had all my own sort of unsettling kind of ideas bubbling up about what's going on at the school and what's happening with these girls and these guys and just what's going on here. And after the film, watching some different interviews and reading things, there's all this, you know, and some of them occurred to me because I think some of them are overt enough that you have to accept them. But there's a lot of projection, I think, that goes on. It creates an atmosphere where and instead of, like you said, like going in and seeing like, oh, there's, you know, these carvings in the rock that show like a mysterious beast or something that would say like, oh, OK, this is the question I'm sort of I'm supposed to be acting, asking. Instead, it just hints at so many things that you feel as though you're catching on. You feel like, oh, I see, like it's going this way or, oh, I get it. They're hinting at this. And so it feels like since you're putting that work in that um, there's not just one track here that we need to figure out an answer to. There's so many different things that you're that are competing for our attention. And it allows us to project these ideas because one thing I thought was funny is there's this undercurrent in this film, right, of eroticism. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's pretty apparent to any viewer, right? Even though the film is as far from explicit as you can be, yeah. like I think, and you know, in so many ways, and especially in any sort of sexual way, I think the most skin you see is like a girl's ankle or something. Yeah. But there's still this erotic undercurrent going on. And I caught on to that. But watching some people talking about the different critics, or I even watched the, you know, the famous comedian Patton Oswalt. He's a big movie buff. And there, there's an interview with him about this movie because he's a fan. And so many people were bringing in like, oh, the, the clearly erotic moment here, or the obviously sexual moment here, or the, somebody used the term like soft porn aspect of this or that. And some of these I was kind of going, huh, like, I don't know. <laughs> That I quite caught it to to that level. And it makes me think that, you know, this film really does open up for you to project your own kind of thoughts and fears into because it isn't telling you even which question you're supposed to be asking other than where are the girls. You're just sort of allowed to ruminate in this atmosphere. And it just is sort of going to, I think, bubble up whatever is inside of you right now. Yeah. So whatever anxieties you may have about these characters or yourself or whatever, it, it's going to bring those. And then you just have to sort of project them into what's happening. And yeah. I think that's kind of the frustration of the film as well. Yeah. I, I, I actually, I was, as you were saying this, I was thinking like, uh, this is actually one of those films that would fit very nicely into Chris Nolan's metaphor with Inception, which is that, you know, he, he said before that Inception is a movie about technically it's a movie about filmmaking and, and telling stories. And uh, they talk about how they construct the dream and they leave it empty enough for the subject to fill it with their subconscious. And yeah, I think this is a film that does have that emptiness to it, but it's, I don't know how to explain it, but it's one of those films where it's an intentional, artful emptiness that is constructed in such a way 
that, like you said, you fill it with your own expectations, your own anxieties. And because of that, I think this is the kind of film that you you very much get out of it what you take into it. And that's not to say it's it's your fault if you don't like it or anything like that. It's It's the kind of film that it doesn't feel like it's telling you what to think at all. In fact, this is probably one of the films that I have seen in, in terms of ambiguity and not telling you what to think. This is probably like the strongest film I've ever seen in that regard. Like even movies that, that try to leave it a little bit ambiguous, there's still kind of a hint of maybe not an agenda, but you know, a, a thread, like a theme that you're supposed to kind of hold on to. And this one, it's, you know, cause a lot of movies end with like, well, what do you think happened? What do you think the story was? But this one is kind of, almost kind of like, what do you think this was about? You know, it's like on an even broader level and it's. It's true. You know, it's much more than even like, again, with inception, like a, Oh, like, was it a dream or wasn't it? You know, it, where the question is a bit more straightforward. Mm -hmm. This one's just so clouded. What did I just witness? (laughs) Yeah. Even to the point of, I think about, you know, again, bringing it back to this idea of eroticism and repression. And that was something that I was kind of rolling my eyes at a bit for, for you know, I thought maybe in the beginning of the film is there like, because it's such a trope, right? To have like these boarding houses and like, oh, they're all repressed and it's all just this sexual tension. But I think the film has so much more going on as well. Like, yes, that's there, but there's also this idea like we were talking about of just a wild land and trying to civilize it and all of these other currents going through it. And I I was again listening to an interview with Peter Weir and he said, he said that he hated the lesbian idea. He said that there was lots of people that came like, oh, they're, they're lesbians and there's lesbianism going on with like the younger girls, the older. And he said, he thought that idea was boring and it wasn't the case. He says he thinks kids at that age, the age of the girls in the film, he said they do develop crushes on their own sex, but it isn't like a, he said it's much more of like a hero worship kind yeah. of thing than it is any sort of like desire for a romantic relationship. Yeah, it's nowhere near so literal. But but I think it's interesting that one of the things that like almost any review you touch on this is going to mention like eroticism and repressed sexuality and all this stuff. And it's funny to see that the director going like, yeah, not really. <laughs> you know, it's just another example of how many possible, you know, answers there are to this, which again is something that I think is often for a lot of movies, like we've been wrestling with, I think, mm-hmm. is often very frustrating because I think you either get the sort of like, oh, hey, whiz bang, like, let's try and keep you going, like a lost thing. Or you get the, on the other hand, you sometimes get the really pretentious films that are like, oh, no, my film is ambiguous because I am an artiste, you know, and it's mm-hmm. sort of just like, oh, man, give me a break. Like, but I think one thing that's working here is that Peter Weir and his, and his team have actually put in a lot of effort to to trying to balance out letting you know where this is going and letting you know that this is going to be that kind of a film and casting this spell that it feels like that intention has helped to negate some of what might just be a lot of pompous posturing from the creator saying like, oh, look at how mysterious and vague I am. You know, critics will be talking about this film later trying to figure me out and they won't be able to do it because I'm so far ahead of them. Mm-hmm. You know, I, we don't. I, I don't feel like we get that vibe from this movie. I, I do want to talk about 
another element of this film that I found sort of very frustrating and grating. And to do that, let's go right into my clip, if we could, that I pulled from the film. So this takes place. The girls have gone on their outing to, you know, their picnic to Hanging Rock. And this is right as the four girls who are going to become the center of the film go up to their French instructor and they say to her, you know, can we go off? Can we wander off a little bit away from the group to do some measurements, you know, to look at some things about the rock that we were curious about? And she says, you know, that, that they can go. And this is, you know, this is, right, this is before the disappearance has happened. Excuse me, mademoiselle. Yes, Maria. I should like to make a few measurements at the base of the rock if we have time. With Miranda and Irma. Oh, please, mademoiselle. We'll be back long before tea. Eh bien, allez. May I come too, please? So long as you don't complain. I won't, I promise. And don't worry about us, mademoiselle. We shall only be gone a little while. What do you know? I know that Miranda is a Botticelli angel. So this film illustrates something that, like I say, can be very frustrating and grating about this movie. And that's the, I mean, this is the sort of dialogue and atmosphere that can so easily misstep and become just an eye-rolling, annoying... I mean, you have these girls, and they're they're so entranced in this dreamlike quality of the film that, you know, their Australian accents are toned down to, like, the subtlety because their voices are just so airy, and they... Oh, la la Yeah. <laughs> and they... And you get the... I don't know if you've seen, like... I don't know if you've seen any of the, like, Anne of Green Gables iterations, but these are these... You know, these are girls. It opens with them, the film with them, like they're reading poetry and they're staring off into the distance and they just can't because it's so beautiful. And, you know, there's this they're just these very sort of silly girls. And, they, you know, it's a film where the French teacher can hold up her little parasol and say to nobody just to the air. Ah, now I understand, you know, <laughs> and it's just it's just, you know. Both you and I are engaged in storytelling of different different ways and different means, and as writers and so on, you, you you can't put that stuff on paper and just it's just so silly and pretentious. And you get the idea that these girls are the type that would run around and and have like oh bosom friends and boon companions, uh -huh. but unlike kind of the end of Green Gables series, there's no sense of humor or none of the knowing nods that that say like ah yes look at these silly girls like remember that time when you took when you thought life was like this you know and when you were a silly teenager it's just and playing with their innocence naivete it's just sort of we're supposed to accept it as kind of this is the atmosphere of the movie and it was enough that at the beginning of this film i wasn't sure if i was going to be able to really embrace this movie because it's just so silly and there's no nod there's no 
wry sense of kinda... we are we are aware. Yeah, it's just like no, except this you know this very silly atmosphere, and this is why I think I mean this is true of most films, obviously that if you just pull a scene out, you're missing something because you don't have the whole context of the film. Mm -hmm. And even though this film is so ambiguous in so many ways, I feel like this film really needs its entirety to work. Because if you take out any single scene, like if you were just to show this, like if I was in a, a film class, say, and we didn't have time to watch Picnic at Hanging Rock, and they're like, here, we're going to show you a scene. And they showed me this scene. I'd be like, oh my gosh, what is this film? Like, <laughs> why would I ever waste my time watching yeah. something like this? Self-indulgent um, And, you know, and I'm fine. I'm. This is coming from a person, you know, I eschew realism. I don't think it's necessary or often even all that interesting. I'm fine with stylized acting. You know, I don't have a problem with the fact that before Marlon Brando, actors weren't all mumbling and, you know, angsty. And I, I'm happy with different directions and styles acting can take. But this is just, it's so in its way kind of pretentious and ridiculous that it gets frustrating in that way too. And I think the only way that it succeeds is it starts to break you down with all of the cinema that it's throwing at you. What I mean by that is really taking advantage of the medium of cinema and it's throwing music at you and images and repetition and motifs and fog and all of these things to suggest and to hint at the great overarching mystery of it all that eventually you do become sort of entranced in its spell. And I think part of that is the repetition, which again is something that could be very grating and frustrating and is in a way. But by the time you've heard that, you know, the little lick of that pan flute for like the 800th time during that film, <laughs> you know, I think you sort of ride the stages of, okay, interesting, dreamlike, you know, Peter Weir has messed around with um, dreams and dreamlike filmmaking throughout his career. But, and so you, you grasp that and then it becomes irritating and then it becomes overwhelming and then you're just sort of lost in it again. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's what the journey of this film was like. Frustration with the story, frustration with cliches, frustration with the silliness and dialogue that I couldn't believe that somebody put on paper sort of. But then you just are bathed in all this atmosphere to the point where you kind of have to surrender to the film. Yeah. And just let it happen to you. Yeah, no, I I agree completely. That's a really good ass assessment of it, I think. And uh, some, something else I, I thought that I had had during, like you said, those opening scenes where you're almost kind of rolling your eyes at like, jeez, oh, like what, what what is going on? What am I, what am I being made to watch right now? <laughs> I think it also helps to serve as, I mean, it's part of this overall tapestry. Like you said, you pull one thread out and this whole thing comes apart. But uh, I think that there's a fantastic juxtaposition of. These sort of dainty, dreamlike, oh, like, look at that. Oh, isn't that nice? Oh. And this harsh, deadly cliff that quite literally just swallows these girls whole, you know, like. Yeah. And it's interesting how that starts to kind of come apart as the movie goes on. Like that that sort of peaceful, serene kind of like, oh, this is this is life as we've made it kind of thing just slowly is stripped away from these characters, this comfort that they have given themselves begins to kind of vanish as they realize more and more how little they actually control things. 
Yeah, I, I think that makes for a fun juxtaposition of these kind of dainty schoolgirls and, ha, ah, look at that, huh, against these shots of lizards and snakes crawling on rocks with that pan flute. And it's just, it's such a jarring, like a puzzle, put like a, a puzzle piece in the wrong puzzle kind of thing. Yeah. Like you said, it, help, it helps you kind of segue into these phases as you go through the movie and you start to accept things as they appear and... Yeah, I, I can't think of any other film that I have been as willing to allow to just jerk me around for two hours. You know, I, I, yeah. I, I don't think I would have this level of patience with most other movies I've seen that did had a similar aspect to them. I typically I need structure. I need a point. I need a conclusion. But here I was glad to surrender myself to it. Yeah. And and I would say for me, maybe perhaps surprisingly, I was more reluctant, I think, to abandon myself to it because I felt like I was being led in a different way through parts of it. Like, okay, you're giving me all this ambiguity, but you're leading me to these conclusions that, again, maybe are just sort of telling through projection, you know, of like what I thought the themes of this movie was and what it was trying to say about the world. And But then, yeah, it just, it really does... I'd say it pulls the rug out from under you, but it's more like you realize that there was no rug to begin with by the end of the movie. <laughs> and you're just sort of left to wonder about so many things. So by the end of it, I was caught up in its spell, although I would say maybe it took me longer to get there than I would have thought and maybe longer to get there than than it was for you. Yeah. But who do you think... Who who is this movie for? Who's going to enjoy this? Who who profits by watching this? Why do they watch? <laughs> How do I say this without be, without sounding like a pretentious snob? But uh, I think that this movie is great for people who don't need closure. They don't need resolution. They don't need clear cut plot points to enjoy a film. I think if you're a fan of mystery but not necessarily for the conclusion part of a mystery. I think you would enjoy this a lot. I think if you're like me and you enjoy cosmic horror, if you enjoy kind of Lovecraftian themes of insignificance, the futility of attempting to control the world we find ourselves in. But, you know, you have like Hellboy Lovecraft where it's, you know, tentacles and monsters and crazy outlandish stuff. Uh, fans of that type of thing will be thoroughly disappointed. This is not the kind of film that gives you a payoff of any kind, not even visually. You're not really rewarded for your patience. So you have to be kind of a masochist, I guess. <laughs> to You have to be kind of a film masochist to really enjoy this film because it's a fantastic film. It's a great film, but it is absolutely not for everybody. And I think if you go into it wanting even the mildest superficial reward for watching it, I think you're going to come away disappointed. That being said, I think it's a great movie. Yeah, I would add the the exception of, I think it is rewarding visually in the sense that if you're the sort of person who likes to just be able to bask in looking at beautiful things, you're going to get plenty of that in watching this film. Mm, you're yeah. going to get moments of, you know, sort of one of those movies where you could pause it and and frame it mm -hmm. on your wall. There's a lot of, you know, there's beautiful girls in the beautiful clothing. There's sort of suggestions of innocence and beauty and, you know, and eroticism and man versus nature suggested in this 
in this photography and through this music. And if you're looking for sort of visual poetry, you're going to find a lot of that here. You know, the images of the girls getting ready, sort of bathed in in sunlight and the images out there in the picnic that that look almost like, you know, impressionist paintings at, at some mm. points. Yeah, yeah. So there there's there's a lot there for people who are looking for that. Again, you know, very obviously this isn't a movie if you're, you know, wanting like a really good yarn to you know to entertain you and to bring back it's much more of a tone poem kind of film in that way it has kind of a european cinema feel to it rather than the more western aspects that we get in hollywood britain and even in australia Mm -hmm. with a lot of its films so yeah if you're looking for a dreamy experience if you enjoy films that have elements of poetry and play around with some of that highfalutin stuff this is a film that you want to check out you know certainly if you're into criterion films this is going to be part of your amuse-bouche sampling that you <laughs> that you want to take in yeah i guess just kind of kind of to conclude a little bit for me at least there are two reasons there are two reasons that i enjoy watching a movie one is to be entertained and the other is to be challenged. I think Bird Box is a movie that's designed to entertain and I think that Picnic at Hanging Rock is a movie that's designed to challenge. Whether that's, you know, challenging sensibilities, your concept of morality, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And because of that, I think films that are meant to challenge people get a more mixed reaction from people. Yeah, I, I think this is a good film to watch if you want to be challenged, if you want to be if if you want to watch a movie that requires effort from you. Yeah, that's fair. Good response video to Bird Box, Bo, honestly. I think this was a this was a really great other side of the coin. <laughs> I'll tell you, it took me a little peek behind the curtain. This was the third movie that I tried to pair with it as I was desperately searching for Criterion's answer to Bird Box. <laughs> I even I even went so far as to I was I was coming up empty. And I even went so far as to go to the Criterion subreddit on Reddit and asked people what film they might pair with Bird Box. <laughs> and uh, frankly, I was mostly met with, you're an idiot. Why would you pair anything with Bird Box? Like, there's no, you know, they just looked at me in disgust. Virtual tomatoes hurled at the back of your head as you run away. Yeah, yeah. Um, but again... This is one where I think we've we've been able to find some interesting connections, and I'm actually happy to have been comparing the two films because I think there's things that we that we can draw on, and it you know it isn't really as much as I don't think Bird Box is a film equal to Picnic at Hanging Rock. It's very much um, apples and oranges, and the silly premise of the show you know, isn't really about proving that one form of movies is, you know, inherently better than the other. And so I do think we discover some some things about both on the way, as much as it might be heresy to some people. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bo, well, as always, pleasure talking movies with you and uh, pleasure doing it in front of what is undoubtedly a massive online audience. Thank you all for, for listening in and yeah. joining us for this little powwow. And quick shout out uh, as we're as we're ending, 
we haven't said yet that um, we're here at the, in this lofty position with all these fans, thanks in part to our editor, Joe Hafen, and our uh, composer, Holden Green, who, who did the music, the original music for Kicking and Streaming. Of course, we are indebted to Holden and Joe. Thank you both so much for your contributions and for your help with this. This is a, a fun adventure that we're on. We'll see where it goes. All right. Until next time.